Hey guys, good morning. It's good to see you. Glad that you're here. If uh, this is your first Sunday with us or we just haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Jimmy. I'm the lead pastor here at Rocky River and uh, just great to see you guys. Kyle, anything you want to say to me, man? So I don't feel like you're going to bust during the sermon today. Nothing about the Duke Carolina game. I mean, I was there. You were there. <laughs> but I was there for a Well, you made the one point difference. The, the, the blue, Casey made the difference. That's a good answer for a married guy. It's a good answer. <laughs> I wish I could tell you I was over it, but I'm not. I'm not. But um, I'll try not to preach the whole message, just looking right at you, preaching hard at you. <laughs> yeah, I know that, that throws me off a little bit too, but all right, I'll leave you alone now. Anyway, it's good to see you guys. Um, whether you're a first-time guest or charter member or somewhere in between, it's, uh, it's really good to see you guys. If you have a Bible with you, open it up or turn it on. Go to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 7. Uh, that's in the Old Testament. And if you're kind of new with the Bible, don't be afraid to open that Bible up to the table of contents in the front. Find, uh, man, there's just Duke shirts everywhere. Now I'm seeing Duke everywhere. <laughs> Jeff, I'm going to try. You guys have done this to me on purpose, haven't you? I'm just going to look over here at these godly people sitting on this. <laughs> yeah, what was I saying? Something about the Lord. Then you devils threw me off. <laughs> on Zion. I hear you. I hear you. Guys, we're going to have to edit all this out of the message to podcast it. Um, as we get started, for real, as we get started, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Now, I, I don't want you to, to answer me out loud or raise your hand or anything like that. I just want you to, to think about the questions and then think about your answers. Uh, here's the first question. Do you ever wonder... If your life matters, do you ever wonder if your life matters? I mean, do you ever feel like sometimes in life you're just you're just making time? I have a a friend, a guy I went to high school with. He's a couple of years older than me. He's in a, a local country band called Killing Time. You ever feel like your life is just about killing time, just making time? Or I, I try to remember sometimes what it's like for younger parents, you know, who still have, let's say, elementary age kids. And you're trying to raise kids and you're trying to build a career and you have so much going on. Sometimes it feels like, you know, you're running on a treadmill. You're running 100 miles an hour and uh, you just feel like you're not getting anywhere. Or you feel like life is just rushing past you. And uh, you, you wonder what it's all about. And then you, you get a little older, like I'm getting a little older now, and you have some years behind you, and you start thinking, uh, well, it's not like a constant thing. At least it's not a constant thing for me yet. But I have times where I think, Lord, all the time, all the energy, all the effort, I mean, does it really matter? Does it really make a difference? And, and the truth is, I feel like, all of us at some time or another have that question, you know, does my life really matter? And here's the second question. Would you really know 
if you were living a life that matters? And how would you know? I mean, what, what does a life that matters, what does that even look like? I mean, if you think about it, that, that can be one of the real frustrating things in life. It's, it's bad enough wondering, am I living a life that matters? But, but then the frustration of not even really being sure what that looks like. So you're not exactly sure what to do or how to work toward that, you know, living a life that matters. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Today, I want to talk about what it looks like to live a life that matters and then how to live it. You know, for the past several weeks now, we've been in a series through Nehemiah chapters one through six called Rebuild. But next week, we're gonna change the series title. Now, we're still gonna be in the book of Nehemiah, but we're gonna be in Nehemiah chapters eight through 13, and the series title is gonna be Revival. See, Nehemiah one through six is all about rebuilding the protective wall around Jerusalem, but Nehemiah eight through 13 is about rebuilding the people of God, the people who live in Jerusalem, the people who live in Judah. And and specifically, it's about rebuilding their spiritual lives. See, the, the wall is really the part of Nehemiah's life and his story that gets most of the press. But, but I'm convinced, and I don't think what I'm about to say is heresy. I think what I'm about to say really is true. If it wasn't for the rebuilding of God's people and their spiritual lives, if it wasn't for chapters 8 through 13 and that part of the story, I, I'm not really sure we would even have the story of rebuilding the wall in the scriptures at all. I don't think it would matter. <clears throat> Because what matters most is the spiritual rebuilding of the lives of these people. And if you think about it, without this part of the story, the part of the story we're about to walk into, well, Jerusalem would just be another walled-in city, protected. But, But what's that really all about? Well, Nehemiah 7, which, you know, is right in the middle of this book, It's a transition. It's the transition from rebuilding the wall to rebuilding the people. And what Nehemiah does here, this is important, and it's important to consider this. What Nehemiah does here is he starts to help the people in Jerusalem begin to look at their city, the city of Jerusalem, and and themselves as a people to see that Jerusalem is about the, the national and spiritual life of the people. That there's a purpose here that's, that, that's bigger than the wall. That there's, a, there's a purpose, there's something going on here in that story that's, that's even bigger than their lives. That this wall and God rebuilding these people's lives, their spiritual lives... It's about God's bigger plan and purpose for the world. And we'll see how some of these things unpack over the next few weeks. But when you think about, when you think about what that means to us, what does it matter? I mean, what, what does the story of 
Nehemiah and a group of Jews in 444 BC, what does that have to do with raising your kids in the 21st century? What does that have to do with with anything in the 21st century? Well, here's the big idea of today's message. What you're going to see today are five things that matter to God. Five things that matter to him. And, And listen, the key to living a life that matters is to make a commitment to the things that matter to God. If you want your life to matter, I mean to make a difference right now today, Today in this place, today when you walk out of this church and you walk into a restaurant or you go into work today or you go into work tomorrow, if you want your life to matter today, if you want to make it matter for eternity, then you have to make a commitment to the things that matter to God. That's what we're going to talk about. Now, if you're already in the book of Nehemiah and... uh, You've started looking down through it. Maybe you've noticed that there are 73 verses in this chapter. How many verses? 73. And we're going to go through every one of them. And when we're finished, you're going to understand everything about Nehemiah chapter 7. And when we leave here today at 430. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Obviously, we can't go through all of these verses, right? So we're not going to try. But what I am going to do is give the highlights. I want, I want you to see these things in Nehemiah 7 that matter to God. And I want to try to help you make a commitment to the things that matter to God. So if you're taking notes, let's get to work. Still with me? All right. The first thing that matters to God is worship. Worship. Worship matters to God. Look at Nehemiah 7, verse 1. It says, After the wall had been rebuilt, and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. What in the world does that mean? Well, we're going to put some verses with it a little later that sort of help flesh this out a little bit. But here's what's happening. Up to this point, you don't need gatekeepers at the gate. Well, yeah, up to this point, because now the, now the, the wall's been rebuilt, the, the gates have been hung, the, the doors are hung on the gates, so, so now you have a wall, you have gates that need keepers, but before the wall is rebuilt, what do the gatekeepers do? Well, the gatekeepers have been up at the temple guarding the gate where people would go into the temple. But now because the wall has been rebuilt and you have gates and doors out on the wall, where do you need the gatekeepers? You need them out at the gate. But then the musicians, you sort of get the image that, you know, may, maybe these guys are the guys that play music up at the, the temple, and they are. But what about the Levites? The Levites are priests. 
So what Nehemiah does is he appoints the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the priests who are normally up in the temple. He appoints them to go out to the city gates and watch from there. That's what the gatekeepers would do. But also to sing there, to preach there, to worship there. What in the world is that about? I mean, that's kind of weird. I mean, if you live in Harrisburg, I I live in Harrisburg, and we have these massive signs out on Highway 49 that look nice. There's not really a gate, but I guess those signs that say, welcome to the Berg. I don't say the Berg, but welcome to Harrisburg. That's what we call Harrisburg. I'm not really sure exactly where that comes from, but anyway, I, I call it the Berg. But we don't have gatekeepers out there. We don't have musicians and priests out there worshiping and leading people into worship. So what in the world is Nehemiah thinking here? It's a part of the bigger picture that you're going to see over the next few weeks. But for the sake of today's conversation, Nehemiah wants the people to know that One day of worship where you go into the temple, you know, and you sing songs and you have a live band, which they would have had musicians, but they wouldn't have a live band like we have a live band. But going to the temple and singing and worshiping, listening to a message, making your sacrifices, and then walking away. There is no walking away. Worship is no longer supposed to be something that just happens in, in the temple. It happens in the church building and then you, you walk away and then you get on with the other parts of your life. What he really does with putting the gatekeepers and musicians and the priest out at the, the city gates, he basically makes the city of Jerusalem the courtyard of the temple. And so he says, now, you, of course, you go in for the corporate times of worship. You go in and we all worship together. But then when you leave and it's Monday morning and it's business as usual and you're setting up your shop, well, as you're doing business, that's worship as well. In your homes, in your family life, when you're, when you're playing Ball when the Hills and Duke are playing, you know, inside the city gates there. That's worship too. That probably felt like worship Friday night for you guys, didn't it? It made me feel like I needed to go to church. What what is worship? Because, I mean, what, what Nehemiah is not saying is that, listen, tomorrow when you're, when you're selling your baked goods, um, you know, I want you singing songs and preaching sermons to all your customers. That, that's not what he means. Certainly not. What worship ultimately is, is it's about honoring God. It's about praising him. You do that corporately, like, like we've done it this morning. But, but then when you walk out of church, when you, when you walk out of the temple, 
you're to honor God and be worshipful in the way you live your life when you do business. When, when, you're, when you're talking to your wife or to your husband, when you're raising your kids, when you're paying your bills, you do that in a way that's worshipful, in a way that brings honor to God's name. And, and look, I'll tell you, there, there are times that, you know, are just easier to do that than other times. You know, all joking aside, it's, well, it's a little bit funny, but like I had a wedding this weekend in Waynesville, North Carolina, up around Lake Genaluska. We had a the rehearsal on Friday, and the, most of the, the folks in this wedding party, a couple of them are Tar Hill alum, and one of them is at Chapel Hill now. And let's just say there were, there were 60 people at this rehearsal and rehearsal dinner. 50 of them were Carolina fans, including the bride, not the groom. He's a Duke fan. But I'm telling you, I'll almost guarantee you, because I've been to a lot of wedding rehearsals and, and weddings, I'm telling you that things were timed out around the ACC schedule. I'm just, the game schedule, I, I'm pretty sure. I've never, I've never had a wedding rehearsal at 4 o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> until Friday. Now, Karen and I went to check in our room after the rehearsal. And uh, our room had a TV about this big. <laughs> I did, it, well, it wasn't that so it was, it was no bigger than this. Like, it was, it was about the same size as my computer screen, which is like a... 13 and a half or 14 inch computer screen and it was 20 feet from the bed how can you watch that how can you watch the game on that so we had to find a place nearby that we could watch the game and the only place that was open in Waynesville late enough to be able to watch the game that would also have a tv that we could watch the game and place where we could eat wings because I don't know how you watch a ball game without eating wings the only place was the was the Waynesville Tap House. And it's just hard for me to live a worshipful, God-honoring life watching my hills get beat by the Blue Devils. You have to take Jesus with you everywhere you go when you follow Jesus. Tar Heel games, Panthers games. The point is that worship matters to God. Not, not just the worship that you give and hear. The way you honor him when you walk out of here. You, you honor him today when you're dealing with that wait staff person at the place you eat your lunch. The, the clerk that checks you out at the grocery store, those of you who still go through lines that have clerks at them, you just, you honor God wherever you are and that matters to God. 
next. Character matters to God. Character matters to God. Look at Nehemiah 7, verses 2 and 3. Nehemiah says, I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother. What's his name? Hanani. If you remember, this is the guy that was a part of the group of delegates that showed up in Susa in Nehemiah chapter 1 to give a report for how bad things are going back in Jerusalem. He's the guy that sort of got all of this kicked off with Nehemiah. So in, uh, I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. What in the world does that mean? Well, remember, first of all, that Nehemiah and the people still have enemies living in Jerusalem. Like Tobiah is still pretty deeply rooted in Jerusalem. He has family in Jerusalem. And when they open up the city gates, that's to allow the merchants and the shoppers to come in and and do business. And so Nehemiah is saying, hey, listen, we still have people that want to come in here and hurt us. Don't open the gates until the sun is completely up so that the gatekeepers can see every person who's walking in to make sure that there aren't enemies slipping in among the merchants and the customers coming in to do business because we don't want them to pull a surprise attack on us. So don't open the gates too soon. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, this is the second part of verse 3, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their post and some near their own houses, which is so smart. Nehemiah, what a great leader this guy was. So smart. He says, hey, let the people watch the city walls. Give them a stake in this. They live in the city. Their, their homes are here. Their businesses, they're, they're raising their kids here. Let them be a part of protecting the city walls and put them in charge of parts of the walls that are near their homes, their houses, th- thinking that if they're guarding their own houses, their own property, the wall right by their own houses, they're, they're just going to be a little more diligent than maybe they normally would be. But Nehemiah here is looking for men, for people who have character. And not just character, but good character. Not just good character, but a godly character. What does that even look like? Well, here it means two things. Nehemiah is looking for people who have integrity and they fear God. What is integrity? Well, integrity just means... These are men who will do their jobs. They'll do their job. They have a job. They're getting paid for the job. And you can trust that they'll do their job. What a concept. These are men who will work while they are at work. They're not on Facebook and Twitter. Maybe they are in in their breaks. But they're not on Instagram at 10 a.m. in the morning, right in the middle of the working morning. 
These are people who will do their job. They know what their job is. They've agreed to do the job. And Nehemiah says, I I knew I could depend on these men to do their job. And not only are they, they men who will do their job, but they will fear God while they're doing their job. What, what, what does that mean? It means they're going to do their job, and they're going to do their job in a way that honors God. See, here it is again. It's, the, it, it, it's, it's this idea that you don't take off the God man or the godly you or the worship man or woman that you are, the Christian that you are, when you go out into the business world and start doing business. You, you, don't, you don't divide your life up like it's a, a one big pie. And you say, okay, God, I'll give you this part of my life and this part of my life, but my school life or my social life or my social media or you know the, these other parts of my life, well, they belong to me and I'll, I'll do business however I see fit. Not if you have a godly character. And of course, this doesn't mean that you never mess up doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means you can be trusted. There's some business owners and people who are in management situations in this room. They wouldn't do it, but if they could, they would stand up and say, man, that's exactly who I'd like to have working for me. Somebody that shows up when they're supposed to be there. And when they are there, they actually work. They actually do what they're getting paid for. And then they do it in a way that honors God. If you're doing things in a way that honors God, that doesn't mean that you're walking around with a, you know, a Bible in your arm big enough to choke a horse when you're at work. I mean, this is not something where you're being called to be weird. I'll let you decide what weird is. But it's where you... You, you do what you've committed to do, and you do it in a way that honors God. If you want to be recognized at work, this is how you do it. You know, for several years now, I've been telling my kids, <clears throat> look, if you... If you want to be heads above other people that are around you, people your age or, or adults, learn how to talk to people so you, you can speak, you can have conversation with people, and you will. Number two, be on time to work. And being on time is not, well, work starts at 8 so you're there by eight. If work starts at eight and you're there at eight, you're late. You, you should be there between 7.30 and 7.45 so that when eight o'clock hits, you're ready to go. You're, you're working from eight until whenever you're done. But I've started adding these two things in here as well. Things that I just thought maybe would be understood to them, but I want to make sure that they get them. You know, be a person of godly integrity. Do your job. And then do it in a way that honors God. And I'm telling you, whether you're 21 and 18, 19, or 
you're 31 or 41 or 51 or 61 or whatever age. You do these two things and people will notice you. Godly character, it matters to God. Next, people matter to God. People matter to God. To understand this, you really have to read through and look through Nehemiah 7 verse Uh, verses 4 through 73, but I've already told you we're not going to read through that list of names. But I do want you to notice a couple of things. First, I want you to notice that this list of names, well, these are names that go with people. These are people. Now, we don't know them. As far as we know, none of us are related to them. But God knows them. And listen, here is a record of them. This is a list of names that God remembers in his book. What does that tell you? That tells you that people matter to God. And listen, I want you to know this, that you matter to God. I knew this week as I was kind of going back through my notes for this message I knew or I felt pretty certain that God would bring people to Rocky River Church this morning at 8.30, 9.45 or 11.15. Some people would be here just for God to be able to say, you matter to me. You may not matter to anyone else, but you matter to me. I care about you. I love you. You know, we're coming up to the the Easter season. And of course, we just sang a few minutes ago the, the wonderful cross. When you have a God who dies for you, that's a God who's for you. You matter. You matter to God. Families matter to him. If you you look through this list of names, you you can see that practically, I think almost without exception, there may be two or three exceptions, but with only a few exceptions, every person that's listed here, they're listed in in a grouping of families. You find family all the way through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. God is always referring to his people as his children, as his family. Think about Jesus. How did Jesus tell us to to think about God as father? Not just father, you know, the father who sits on this heavenly throne up there in in the sky somewhere, but Abba. Daddy, that's an intimate term. That, that's a, a father who cares about his kids, not just who has some kids, not, not just takes a, a hand in raising them occasionally, but a father who loves his kids. You, you can tell here that men matter to God. Now, ladies, I, I 
I thought long and hard before putting this in my notes. Because my, my worry is that if I say that God cares about men, and I've said God cares about people, you know, individuals, he cares about family, he cares about men, women are going to think, well, where are we? God cares about you too. A lot. He cares about you as much as he does anyone else. And in fact, I'll, I'll tell you this. I, I know what the, the popular ideas are in our culture now about the Bible and that it's oppressive when it comes to women. and so, That's just not true. So I, I get that your anthropology professor told you that in college. And he said he or she said she read the Bible. Not if they believe that the Bible is a book that holds women down. So maybe you love your anthropology professor, but I'm just going to tell you, he or she is either lying or they're ignorant of what God's word really says. The Bible, the New Testament and Jesus in particular, do more to raise the status of women than any government on earth, including our own. The Bible places greater value on women than any special interest group you can name. And that's just the truth. If you don't believe me, you read the Bible. And don't just, you know, cherry pick it. Pull out this and pull out that. You have to read it all together and in context. And there's no way to walk away from that thinking that God doesn't care about women. He does. But he cares about men. And here's what I mean in particular, men. When you look through this list of names, they're masculine. And I know what that day and time was like. Whenever you look at a genealogy, you're, it's, it always goes by men. That's not just a sexist thing. That is because God has given men the responsibility of being leaders in the home. It's just that way. That doesn't mean that, you know, a man's supposed to sit around in a wife beater shirt and crush beer cans on his forehead. But husbands are to love their wives the way that Jesus loves us, to make sacrifices, willing to die, give up our lives to lead our wives and our kids. And you know, the family takes a big hit in our culture today. In North America, Europe, for some reason, our cultures are just down on families. But everywhere in the world that family thrives, it's because families promoted, and in those cultures, men are leading their families. And men, I'm going to tell you because I'm one of us. The, the, the fact that our families are falling apart all over our country today, it's not because, it's not because women, it's not because 
our wives haven't held up their end of the bargain. Yeah, there's example, there are examples where you can see that women haven't. But by and large, as a people group, as a culture, it's men who have not kept up their end of the bargain. Primarily because we won't be obedient to God and lead our families toward him. People matter. They matter to God. If you're going to live a life that matters, you're going to have to make a commitment to people that people matter. In 390, it's a long time ago, wasn't it? 390. Excuse me. Little boy was captured by the Scotch Irish. They were, the Scotch Irish then were slavers. They picked up several groups of people, and in one of these groups was a little boy about 10 years old. He was taken across the Irish Sea where he became a slave under the king of Ireland who put him out to be a shepherd in the shepherd's field. Out in the shepherd's field, he had to fend for himself. There wasn't a mother or a father or anybody else out there that cared about him, fed him, those sort of things. So while he was out in the shepherd's field, he had to forage for his own food, take care of himself. Now, he was raised in a Christian home. And while he was all alone out there for, I think, nearly three years, before he escaped. The only person he had to talk to was God. And he made a deep commitment to God at about age 13. Not long after that, somewhere around, it's hard to, hard to know exactly what the dates are, but some, somewhere around his uh, 13th or 14th, maybe 15th birthday, he heard about a boat that he could possibly escape to stow away and sell away from Ireland. That's what he did. He ran to that boat, stowed away, crossed back over the Irish Ocean, was reunited with his parents who could see immediately that there had been a change in his life. They were glad to have him home, but they loved him, cared for him, all that stuff, but this guy had made a real commitment to Jesus. For 30 years, he could not get the pagan Irish children off of his mind. Back then, the, pag- the Irish were tremendous pagans. They worshiped pagan gods. They sacrificed human beings, including children, on pagan altars. They literally howled at the moon. For 30 years, he could not get the Irish people off of his mind, especially the children. And periodically, over those 30 years, he would have dreams of Irish children raised in pagan homes dying and going to hell. He'd been receiving ministry training. And one day he packed up everything, went back across the Irish Sea, and for the rest of his life, he was a missionary to Irish people. His favorite little tool, you know, Ireland is green. It's wet there most of the time. His favorite tool was a 
a shamrock. He would use that shamrock to explain the gospel and talk about Jesus to the children there in Ireland. His name was Patrick, and of course we know him as St. Patrick. You know, the shame is that all day long today, people all across North America, all across Europe, and in spotted places around the world, people are going to drink beer, green beer, to St. Patrick. I think in Chicago, they pour green dye in the water, which is about the only time of the year I would get even close to that water. That has to be the cleanest time of the whole year is when they pour green dye in that river. Nasty. It's a nasty river. They'll be celebrating St. Patrick's Day, and most people have no clue who they're celebrating. St. Patrick was a man who was deeply committed to the people of Ireland because people matter to God. You can't live a life that matters if you're not committed to people, loving them, serving them, sacrificing for them. Number four, your place in God's family matters to God. Your place in God's family matters to him. Nehemiah 7 verse 5 says, So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been first to return. So again, it's just this genealogy. Probably the genealogy that you find in Ezra chapter 2. When Nehemiah is putting together his document, he just went and found Ezra's document. And he includes that here in his own book. But when you talk about these genealogies, listen, you're not just talking about random groups of people. These are just not random names. These are, these are not just random families. These are the people that at that time made up the family of God. And it matters to God that you have a place in that family. And listen, I know what the, the popular concept uh, is uh, in, in our culture about God's family. We're just all God's children. That's not true. It's not true. What's the temperature outside today, right now? It's cold. It's about 50. It's going to be up in the mid-50s today. So if everybody was just a part of the family of God, I would either be fishing or playing golf today. Why not? Nothing to do here. But the fact is, God created all of us, but we're not all just automatically God's children. We don't all just get into God's family. He chooses all of us, but we have to choose him back. That's why Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody cometh unto the Father. Nobody can be in his family except that they come through me. God wants you in his family. He's chosen you. He created you. He certainly didn't create you to go to hell, but you have to choose him back. And so whether you're in his family or not, that matters to God. And then finally, 
Your commitment matters to God. Your commitment. Look at Nehemiah 7, 6 and 7, 73. First, uh, verse 6. These are the people of the province who came up from captivity or the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. So that goes all the way back to 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys the southern kingdom. Verse 73, the priests and Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the temple servants, along with certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites, settled in their own towns. You know what this means? This means that there's a, a large group of people who are committed to God, but there are people who are not committed. So every, everyone who is in Persia, you know, the Persians overtook the Babylonians. So when Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer, it's the Persian king Artaxerxes. But not everyone left Persia. That's because Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar under the Babylonians and then Cyrus and now Artaxerxes under the Persians, they had decided at some point that they would let these captive people become a part of the larger society. They were going to be kind of a melting pot of societies. So for probably decades and decades now, the Jewish people have been able to be a part of the secular Persian society. They're a part of the economy. Some of them own businesses. They have houses. They, they've raised their kids at, you know, whatever Yale University is in Persia or, you know, the college is there. They have a Persian education and they stayed. I'm sure there was a meeting in the community clubhouse one night. You know, everybody who's interested in going back to Jerusalem, let's all meet and we'll talk about it and start making travel arrangements. And then when some of these people started looking at what it would take, they were like, you know, I kind of think I like it better here. Life in the city was more comfortable than it would be in in Judea, uh, Judea. In Jerusalem, they knew that they they knew it would be hard to pack up and move to a, an area that's been devastated by war. Some of them had kids in high school, and they're thinking, you know, they just started their junior year, so we don't want to pull them out of high school now. Let's let them graduate, and then maybe we'll move. It's just not good timing. They knew that they would be moving to a place that was hostile. So there were a lot of people who stayed in Persia, but obviously many of the Jewish people did return. There's a list of them here. And why did they return? Because they were committed to being a part of the family of God. That They returned because they remembered God's promise to Abraham and his children, including the people listed right here. The promise to give them land, the promised land. And they're in the promised land when they're in Jerusalem. They they knew that God had said that his name would be worshipped in this temple, in this city in Jerusalem. And they were committed to that. 
They knew that it was about bringing glory to God's name for the benefit, not only of themselves, but for all nations. So, so all nations would be able to look at the people in Jerusalem to see how great and awesome God is, not just so that they would be jealous, but so they would come to him themselves. This has never been only about the Jews. This is always from God's perspective and his big plan. This has always been about the rest of the world. So these who returned, they stayed. They were committed to God's purpose in spite of what it cost them. In spite of the sacrifices, in spite of the hassle, in spite of the hard work, they stayed. Let me tell you why I think this is important. I'll finish with this. On Wednesday nights, I'm teaching a, a series on church history. It's like a survey, church history. I'm digging it. I hope the 30 or 40 people who are here on Wednesday nights, I hope they're digging it too. They keep coming back, so I'm just going to assume that they're digging it. Digging it. Does that translate generation to generation? Okay. We're up to about 590 AD. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Constantine. Constantine, when he became the emperor of Rome, he became a Christian. I won't tell you the whole story. We don't have time. But his conversion and what he did after his conversion makes him one of the people who turned history. He's literally one of the most important human beings to ever live. One of the things that he did after he became a Christian is he gave the Edict of Milan. See, some of you thought that Milan was just about fashion and models and stuff like that. But long before the world's skinniest people, I say that because I'm not skinny. Long before there were models and fashion wear and art in Milan, Constantine gave the edict of Milan that made it legal for Christians to be Christians. It, it, it made it illegal for Romans to persecute Christians. And in 325, he called a group of pastors, bishops, preachers, at that time it was the New Testament concept, so all those terms were interchangeable. But he called pastors and bishops and preachers to, to come to Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul. He wanted them to have a meeting. It's called the Council of Nicaea. And he didn't tell them what they had to believe. He just said, I want you guys to get on the same page. I want to know what the beliefs are. I want to know what other Christians are supposed to believe the way you understand it from scriptures. There are a lot of great things that come out of that. But if we could, if we could imagine 
a picture of what these pastors would have looked like. It would have looked like a horror story. So up until 312 AD, the Romans were actively torturing and killing Christians just because they're Christians. The, the men who came into this little church there in Nicaea, some of them had their eyes gouged out. Some of them came in with no hands, no feet. They'd been chopped off in the persecution. They had burn marks and rope burns and scars all over their bodies from where they had been burned and diced up. They are the pastors and bishops because they've survived the Roman torture, the Roman persecution. And I think about them and what they endured sometimes when I'm having a bad day at work. I think, well, you know, there's no one here to gouge out my eyes today. I'm not worried about someone coming in to cut off my hand. I think about these guys whenever I hear a, a pastor talk about wanting to quit on his call because he didn't get everything in the budget that he wanted. And so now he wants to quit. Or, or a, a pastor that wants to just give up on his call and give up on the ministry or go to another church because he's dealing with a deacon that has it in for him. I think about it when I, when I bump into a former church member that's no longer coming to church here and not going to church anywhere because he or she had their feelings hurt. Someone didn't speak to them. Somebody that didn't call them in a timely enough manner. Well, they just got disenfranchised. They just got upset about something. Good Lord, grow up. Be committed to something. Be committed to God. Be committed to his church. Stop being a baby. And I have to say this to myself, by the way. Because sometimes I get my feelings hurt and I act like a baby too. Be committed to something. Something that matters. Be committed to the things that matter to God. That's when your life will matter. Amen? Let's pray together. If you would just bow your head and close your eyes. Heavenly Father, I, I pray right now for every person in this room and every person who's listening to this message, maybe they're hearing it on this podcast. Lord, we all want to live a life that matters. Help us to realize right now that truly our lives will matter when we commit to the things that matter to you. I won't rehash the message. They've heard it. But Lord, by the power and strength of your Holy Spirit, we give our lives to you to follow you, to be committed to the things that matter to you so that our lives will count, our lives will matter.
Jesus, we pray in your great name. And those who agreed said, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. My belt is coming off.